Peter and Paul had an interesting relationship. I'd love to delve further into that. We can only get little bits and pieces. We know they met. We know they interacted. We also know they never went on a mission trip together. They were rarely in the same place together. Paul at one point calls out Peter. Peter at one point actually makes a comment about Paul's writing. I want to begin with that. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, note that, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. A couple of things to note. Peter verifies Paul as an authorized, inspired writer of Scripture. Peter obviously believed that what Paul wrote was God-breathed, God-given, because he says some people try to distort it, as do they the rest of the Scriptures, including the letters, the writings of Paul, in with all the rest of the Scriptures. He also says that according to the wisdom given to him, he wrote to you. This is not from Paul. This is wisdom from above. And so as, as we get into here the very beginning of the, Paul's letter to the church there at Rome, the saints in Rome, understand that his letters enlisted him into the ranks of Moses and the prophets and all the witnesses of Scripture. It's marvelous talking with, with Sharam Hadian and a comment that he made after our, our meeting a week ago now, Friday night. And he said, it's so interesting that with with Islam, there's one witness, Muhammad. Nobody witnessed him receive the revelations. Nobody witnessed him uh, express the revelations. There's just one witness. Same with all manner of cults and false religions. There tends to be only one witness. There There were three witnesses in Mormonism. Three witnesses who said, yes, they saw the golden plates that Joseph Smith claimed to have seen. Of course, all three witnesses recanted before they died, leaving you with just one witness of that religious faith. Forty authors of the Scriptures. If you don't even go outside the Bible, you have 40 different authors of all the books that we have collected in the Scriptures, and they are internally consistent They are witnesses one of the other. Paul will witness many of the Old Testament authors, even as he writes this letter and others, quoting from them, referring to them, and what they had to say and what they shared. And as these writers verify one the other, what they're doing for us is just standing up on the witness stand, declaring, in fact, this is the Word of God. Paul is in the ranks. Of Moses, the prophets, and all the witnesses of God's holy writ. I just wanted to say holy writ once. I love that. Of God's written word. It's sad to me that there are so many who will disdain the writings of Paul. Perhaps the most criticized writings in all the New Testament, of course, he writes 13 of the 27 books. 
criticized and picked on, and I think not so much because of Paul, as much as because of the content that people don't like. We'll get over it. God is speaking. God has a word for us. As He spoke through His servant Paul to the people in Rome. Now it's true, Paul's intellect can be dizzying. He knows how to pack a punch. He knows how to turn a phrase. He knows how to serve up a full, meaty platter of doctrine. But again, the wisdom is not Paul's. It is wisdom from above. It belongs to Jesus by whom Paul writes and of whom it is written. Isaiah 11 verse 2, The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And if you listen carefully, you may hear actually the breath of Jesus in the greeting of Paul to the Roman Christians. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, before he calls himself an apostle, calls himself a bondservant. He is a bondservant first. An apostle second. He is an apostle because he's a bondservant. The word is doulos in the Greek. It means one who is bound to another in servitude. In fact, the root of the word doulos is the word to bind. So it's one who is bound to service. And it is the highest calling of any follower of Jesus. Servant. Sitting down, Mark 9.35 tells us, Jesus called the twelve and He said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now understand that when Jesus said that, He's speaking attitudinally. He's not speaking relationally. What do you mean? I mean when He says, If you want to be great in the kingdom... If you want to be one of my great ones, you must be a servant. But then, for his part, relationally, Jesus turns around and he says in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servants or slaves, doulos. For the slave does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And so the follower of Jesus recognizes the attitude of Jesus who came first as a servant. And so we are bound to Him as servants whom He calls friends. That's marvelous. To be servants in the house of God and yet close personal friends with the Son of the house. So don't confuse those two because in other religions, again in other cults, you will find that the gods or the deities or the leaders command a hierarchy of greatness. And you climb that ladder of greatness in Mormonism until you are a god yourself. Not so for the followers of Jesus. We are always His servants. And yet He has called us friends. Paul says He's set apart. A bondservant, an apostle, set apart, that is separated for the gospel. And by the way, that's what the gospel ought to do to all of us. The gospel separates us from the pack. The gospel appoints us for a purpose. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are not only saved, you are sent. We are set apart. 
servant friends of Jesus who now have a message to bring. Who now have a word to share with the world. And it's not our word. It's not my word. It's His word. Now... I'm going to give you a bunch of things. I, I was I ran into Andy earlier and I told him, man, I wanted to do chapters 1, 2, and 3 because altogether they're really kind of the sum of a, a whole that Paul is trying to explain. We're going to get through about half of chapter 1 this morning, or this evening. I know we already read half of it on Sunday, but we just got to sit here for a little bit. And right in Paul's greeting, I want to give you nine or ten things to jot down. Number one, you might want to jot down the source of the gospel. The source of the gospel. Paul says he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, which simply means a sent one, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, gospel as a word was common in Rome of the first century. In fact, the word was used pre-Christianity. The word gospel, as we translate it, it often described an emperor's uh, rise or accession to the throne. Archaeology can point to 9 B.C. when an inscription was written regarding the birth of Caesar Augustus. It reads as follows. The birthday of the God, small g, referring to the emperor, was for the world the beginning of tidings of joy. We would translate it the beginning of gospel. The word is euangelion. It's where we get our word evangelist. But euangelion means gospel, or it's translated gospel. Speaking of Caesar Augustus, this inscription calls his birth the beginning of tidings of joy. Does that sound familiar? That sounds to me like a satanic ripoff of exactly what the angel said of Jesus' birth, Luke 2.10. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. The good news of the great joy of a birth of a king was not Caesar Augustus, but Jesus Christ. Euangelion. Was it that Satan ripped off the word, or is it the other way around, that the Holy Spirit took hold of this word, appropriated it from secular usage to give it a better meaning? That the greatest good wasn't the birth or rise of an emperor, it was the birth and rising of a Savior. Of Jesus. Mark, uh, we believe, quoting Peter preaching in Rome, began his gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the euangelion of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that is good news. What Paul says here, and, and note this, you might make a little note in your Bible about this. In fact, if you have a pen, you might just mark through the word the and of. At the end of verse 1, Paul says, set apart for the gospel of God, and yet in the Greek there are no definite articles. It just says, euangelion theo. Now normally there would be an O in there, or there would be an article or, or a personal pronoun, the gospel of, his gospel, something like that, but there's nothing there. No the, no of, just God good news. God good news. Paul says, I am set apart for God good news. That's the gospel. That's a real simple way to think of it and remember it. God good news. God good news? Why would you say it that way? Because you don't have good news without God. 
Because the good news is inherent in the characteristics, in the nature of God who is good. Because God is good, the news is good, because the news is of God. So it is truly God good news. Remember what Jesus said to the young man who came up to him and called him good teacher? He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Mark 10, 18. Now Jesus was implying, yes, that in fact he was God and should be called good. But only God is good. And this is God good news. The source. The source. A holy divine because it comes from the nature of God. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 138 verse 2, You have magnified your word according to all your name. I don't think we fully grasp this. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this. But the name of God and the word of God are completely bound together. It's for His namesake that we have the gospel. And the gospel proves His name. And you can't separate out the truth. He stakes His name on it. His word, His name, it's one and the same. His name is what makes His word good. His character is why the word is good. Everything that flowed out of the mouth of Jesus is good because Jesus is God. God good news. Without any articles. Contrast that. It's interesting that Paul opens this up. Immediately talking about God good news. Contrast that with the current God in Rome, Caesar. Or pick one of the gods in leadership of our world today. And make the contrast. This is a letter, please understand this, a letter from and of the true God. And I think Paul is absolutely intentional in pointing out that this, the source of this is God, true God. The only God. Because he's writing to the center of Roman culture where they truly believe that Caesar was himself a God. In the letter that Paul writes to the church at Rome, he uses the word God, Theos, 153 times. And you might think, well, of course he's going to use the word God a lot. He's talking about God. The word God is quoted, used more in the letter to Romans than any other book in the New Testament. One out of every 46 words in this letter is God. Paul is being intentional in directing the Roman Christians to God. About whom this letter is written, for whom this letter is written, and from whom this letter comes. He is the source of the gospel. God, good news. And Paul said, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Haven't we seen that to be true across a dozen years here? I count it all joy and amazing blessing to have been able to walk through the Bible as we have so far. Because what we have seen again and again and again is the truth borne out. We've seen Jesus expressed throughout from Moses and the prophets as He promised beforehand through all the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And you're probably familiar with this, but my two go-to verses that that talk about this, Psalm 40, verse 7, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Quoted also in Hebrews 10, verse 7. And John 5, 39, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. And so Paul's not saying anything new. He's just saying this Gospel, this God-good news 
was promised all the way through the Scriptures. All the way through the Hebrew Scriptures. As, as you students of the Word study through, you see this, you know this, you're aware of this. That the Bible teaches the Gospel is a person. The God-good news is personified in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so we're not even two verses in before we're reminded once again, it is all about Jesus. Paul writes the letter to the church in Rome because of Jesus. And to focus on Jesus and what He has done and what this means for us as followers of His. As He proclaims the God-good news. Verse 3, concerning His Son. Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So the source of the gospel is this is God good news. The source is God the Father. Secondly, you might jot down the seed of the gospel. The seed of the gospel. Paul writes the descendant of David. The word descendant there is sperma. Is that clear enough for you? The sperma of David, the offspring, the descendant, the fruit of David. Psalm 132 verse 10 says, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your Mashiach, your anointed. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. So what's Paul doing here in these three verses? He is talking about something that is not new. In fact, he makes it clear, I'm not writing you a new sect, a new gospel, a new concept, a new idea. No, this is rooted in something very, very old. From Paul's day, you'd have to go back a thousand years to get to the seed of David and then track it all the way down to Jesus. And you students know this if you, if you look at the genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. Matthew's genealogy runs along the line leading right up to Joseph, Jesus' supposed father, although he's not his father. And of course the problem with that lineage is it runs from David through Solomon, and then on down through a descendant named Jeconiah, who is cursed. And from there on, that lineage was a cursed lineage, and no man could sit on the throne of that lineage, that is David, through the seed, to Solomon, and then through Jeconiah, and then on down to Joseph. Which means if Jesus had been Joseph's natural-born son, he would have been cursed and unable to sit on the throne. Ah, but this descendant of David was not along the line of Solomon, but along the line of his son Natan. David to Natan, and on down the line, bypassing Jeconiah, the cursed line, coming right to Mary, his biological mother, in whom the sperma was planted. And so the seed of David resulted in Mary, his biological mother, and the the seed of the Holy Spirit then placed in Mary. Paul says, it's a gospel, man. It's God good news. It is good news that originated with God. Not only the word of the gospel that originated with God, but the word who is Jesus. The word made flesh. The descendant of David. Jeremiah 23 verse 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And that seed, according to the flesh, is Jesus. Verse 4. Who was de- now watch this? Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead? 
We have the source. We have the seed of the Gospel. Now, the Son of the Gospel. A question. And you all, hopefully by now, are beginning to know how to answer this one pretty quickly. When was Jesus declared Son of God? When was Jesus declared Son of God? Now now think through this with me. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, we know the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The angel doesn't say the Son of God is born in you. He says the child born in you shall be, future tense, shall be called, eventually will be called the Son of God. Spoiler alert, the devil called him the Son of God early on in his ministry. The demons were constantly calling out, Son of God, what have you to do with us? Using the title, pulling that phrase, trying to get the word out before Jesus was ready. How did Jesus refer to himself? Son of man. Son of man. Humbly. Born, the word becomes flesh. Born among us, Son of Man, over and over and over. Jesus only refers to Himself as Son of God in the third person. And beyond all that, very, very rarely, it's hard to find Jesus talking about Himself as Son of God. In fact, you won't find it at all in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He only refers to Himself as Son of God in John's Gospel. Why would that be? Well, John is pointing out something very clearly that Jesus is God. And so he lets it slip a little more often in his Gospel. But again, it's rarely passing the lips of Jesus. And when it does, it's in the third person. And it's toward the very end of his ministry. So again, when was Jesus declared Son of God? In His resurrection. In His resurrection. Look at what Paul said again. He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Son of God. This is not, and this is where the, the, the cults get so confused. It's not that Jesus was created, birthed, to become a Son of God and therefore lesser than God. No, He's called the Son of God. He's declared the Son of God, the huios in the Greek, meaning the firstborn of all inheritance. All the rights, all the privileges thereof. So he has the position of the Son. Naturally, in in his natural state, he is God. He takes the position of the Son, and that position is ratified when he is resurrected from the dead. Psalm 2, verse 6. As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, listen, today I have begotten you. Remember what Paul said back in Acts 13.33. We studied this several weeks ago. God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Jesus is declared, ratified, Son of God in the resurrection. Prior to that, He's God. He's no less God in all eternity prior to that. He's no less God. But in His resurrection, now He takes on the full mantle of Son of God 
the inheritor and the one who has the rights of all the inheritance, the one who now takes on the complete and total authority. And in this greeting to Rome, we're only, what, halfway into verse 4? And Paul repeats it again. When God says something one time in Scripture, it's a good idea for us to pay attention. When He says it twice, I think at that point we need to sit up. When He says it three times or more, He wants to be sure we're understanding this. That Jesus is Son of God in the resurrection from the dead. But wait, there's more. Because it's not specifically His resurrection that's necessarily being dealt with here in verse 4. You see, in verse 4, as with the Gospel, the God good news back in verse 1, in verse 4, where it says, by the resurrection from the dead, you're going to have to draw a line through the word the because it's not there. There is no article before resurrection. Well, so... It doesn't use a possessive pronoun. It's not the resurrection. It's not His resurrection. It's, listen to this, He has declared the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. It's all resurrection. The power of resurrection is a declaration of the sonship of Jesus Christ. Well, maybe Paul just omitted it. I don't think so. For one thing, he's inspired by the Spirit of God. And for another thing, Paul is far too intentional a writer of Scripture. In all the other places in the New Testament, the word resurrection, when written without a definite article or a personal pronoun, always refers to the resurrection of all the dead. Now, are you tracking with me? The resurrection of all the dead, what does that mean? It means beginning with Jesus' own resurrection, the first fruits, as Paul will call them in 1 Corinthians 15. The power of all resurrection rests in the hands of the Son. Declared the Son in His resurrection, but in all resurrection, He's the one who holds the power. That's God good news. Because it means Jesus is the one with the key. You want out of death? Jesus has the key. You want life everlasting? The Son has the key to the city of New Jerusalem. The key to the new heaven and the new earth. The key that unlocks the bars that chains the prison of death and allows all to walk out resurrected. He's the one who holds that. Revelation 1.17 I am the first and the last, Jesus says. And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. There's a lot of theology in this book of Romans, gang. So we see the source of the gospel, the seed of the gospel, the son of the gospel. Number four, how about the spirit of the gospel? Verse four, continuing on. Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness Jesus Christ our Lord I need to explain this this is probably not referring to the Holy Spirit when I began to recognize that I was a little bummed and then I realized well the Holy Spirit is talked about a lot so that's okay 
But it's talking about the nature of Jesus. Talking about his, his spiritual self, because note this, it's in contrast. He is the Son according to the flesh, declared the Son of God. But according to the Spirit, He is Christ the Lord. Note that how Paul says it. Declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Son of God by resurrection. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. He is spiritually in His real self. He is God. He is Lord. He is Christ. Isaiah 43 verse 11. Which says, I, even I am the Lord. And there is no Savior besides me. Well, if there's no Savior besides God, and Jesus is our Savior, then Jesus is God. That's His nature. Isaiah 45, 21, There is no other God besides Me, a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none except Me. So what Paul is doing here in the the Spirit aspect, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, yes, he's talking about the Spirit of Christ. You could say the Holy Spirit, but, but he's talking about the dichotomy that is unique to Jesus. Jesus is the only God-man, will ever be the only God-man, the only one who is ever fully God and fully man. From here on out through all eternity, the only one who can ever claim that. Son of God declared in His resurrection from the physical death, and then in all resurrection from physical death, and Christ and Lord by the very nature of His holiness. A spirit set apart, unique, different. Paul is already delving into the dichotomy between flesh and spirit. As he already had in his previous letter to the Galatian churches, he said, Galatians 5.16, I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. We're in the midst of a battle between our flesh and our spirit. Our spirit that longs to be with the Spirit of God, but our flesh that longs to do fleshly things. And along comes Jesus Christ in both flesh and spirit, Son of God and Lord in Christ. And He says, follow me. Just come follow me. And haven't you found that when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you're far more apt to follow the things of the Spirit than the flesh? It's really hard to feed the flesh when I'm watching Jesus. I don't want to do fleshly things. They're gross or shameful or abhorrent or disgusting when I'm eyes on Jesus. But when I'm eyes on flesh, that's another thing. So Paul is revealing here again the God good news. The God who is Jesus who came in the flesh, but who also, don't forget, is God in spirit. He is both. And Paul's going to expand this flesh versus spirit dichotomy. He's going to expand it further on uh, in a wonderful way as we get further into the letter to the Romans. Verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for His name's sake, among whom... You are also the call of Jesus Christ. 
give you three in a row here. We had the source, we had the seed, we had the Son, and the Spirit of the Gospel. Now, number five, the salvation of the Gospel. Number six, the sending of the Gospel. And number seven, the submission of the Gospel. I'll say those again. And there's a reason I'm crunching them all together. It's not just to save time. The salvation, the sending, and the submission of the Gospel. That's five, six, and seven in our list. The salvation, the sending, and the submission of the gospel. Note again what Paul says. Through whom, that is through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience. Grace, apostleship, and obedience. Salvation by grace, sending as apostles, obedience through submission to the word of God. Grace unto salvation. Apostleship to the mission. Obedience as an act of submission. See, now we're getting into Paul describing a little bit of what it means to receive the gospel. If you receive, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are saved, you are sent, and you are submitted. Saved by grace. Sent as apostles. Little a but sent nonetheless and submitted to God. And it's that third one that I think trips up an awful lot of Christians. I love being saved. And even occasionally, I'll go be sent. But submitted. Obedience. That's where I just need a little more grace. The submission aspect. Which is, by the way, what I think makes Romans 1, 2, and 3 so difficult for so many Christians. Because we don't want to submit to it. We want to do it our way. Or maybe not our way, we want to do it the easiest way possible. But see, there's this obedience issue that's in there. It's not obedience that saves us. No, grace does that. But obedience is our response. It is our act of submission. Paul was himself saved and sent to the Gentiles that they might submit to the God good news so that they could be saved and sent and submitted. That's the call of the gospel, and it's for every one of us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul writes, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our Gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now understand this. This issue of submission. And we're not going to understand and get all this tonight, by the way. Paul is beginning to... It's like he's opening a library. And by the time we get through Romans, we'll be like, okay, I think I get it. But then there are 12 other letters which will help. As we just get into these verses, he's introducing the concepts. He's introducing the ideas. He's, he's drawing our attention to these things. And this issue of submission is huge because, my friends, if this entire letter is all about God, then how we respond to it is either in submission or rebellion. It's going to be one of the two. He has called us to submit. Now, when I say submission... It is an act of free will. It is your choice. 
It's your choice in mind whether we're going to submit to Jesus in the first place. It's also your choice in mind whether we're not whether we're going to submit to what he says. Whether we're going to obey his teachings. It's our call. It's not like again Islam. And I don't mean to be well, yeah, I do mean to be picking on Islam. I don't mean to be picking on Muslims, but I do pick on Islam and simply because we've just heard from Pastor Hadian and it's such a ripe source. But in Islam, you all know this, submission is not by choice. It's a forced deal. Islam doesn't mean peace. It means peace through submission. Forced submission. You either accept it or you are forced to it. And there is no alternative. The God good news of the gospel is never forced. You see, love that's forced is called rape. And that is not our God. He will never, He has never forced Himself on anyone. He will not force Himself on you. He calls us to obedience. He shows us what obedience looks like. But then He says, Now, falls in your court. I hope you choose Me. Submission is an act of our will, our choice. The Gospel calls us to submit, but God, God submitted Himself to the cross before we were ever asked to do a single thing. Jesus obeyed the Father unto death, taking our place. Show me another God who ever did that in history. While other gods are saying, Die for me, Jesus says, I died for you. The ultimate act of submission. So when He says, Rick... I'd like you to submit to my will. I have no problem saying, yes, Lord. I can submit to a God who already submitted to death. Salvation, sending, submission. It's all here. And you can think about this and chew on it some more on your own. Going on to verse 6. Among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. I just love that. The saints of the Gospel. The saints. The source, the seed, the Son, the Spirit. Salvation, ascending, the submission. Now, number eight. The saints of the Gospel. So called by Paul, Gentiles. Remember Peter said once we were not a people. Now we are. Once we had not obtained mercy. Now we have mercy. Now we have a background. Now we have one to whom we run. Now we have a position here. We are the saints of God. We are the called of Christ. We are the beloved of God. And here referred to in this wonderful word, saints. And let me say clearly, it is not a word to single out only the most impressive Christians. It is not a word to divide out one from another in the hierarchy of man's thinking. No, that's human thinking and it's stinking thinking as far as I'm concerned. The saints, we're all saints. You become a saint by the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, look around this room. This is a room full of saints and we didn't need the Pope to tell us. Saints of God. Hagios in the Greek. Note that word, you're going to hear it plenty of times from Paul. 
Not just in this letter, but in all his letters. The Hagias, the Holy Ones. How encouraging. How remarkable for the Gentiles in Rome to hear what had only ever been called the Jewish people. The Jews have been called the Holy Ones of God for a long time. The Hagias in the Greek would be a, a word applied to only the Jewish ones, the called, the chosen ones. And now suddenly, you're a saint. Saint Rick. I don't have any Christian friends named Bernard, but I think... That would be great. Saint Paul. Saint Paul Schultz. You are the holy ones of God. And anyone made righteous by the gospel of Jesus Christ, washed in His blood, is a holy one of God. Like Paul. But he's no more saint than you are. No more saint than Saint Joel. Saint Maddie. He's no more saint than any of us are. We receive that gift by the blood of Jesus together. And Paul, yeah, he's a saint set apart unto God himself. And he's a saint both for then and for the future. We are saints right now. But we are also saints to come. Which is one of the things that really thrills me as we go through the Word of God. Romans 8.27 says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints on behalf or according to God. What does that mean? It means you're saints right now. Because right now Jesus is interceding for you, right? So right now, today, January whatever, is this the 20th? Today? January 20th, 2016, we're saints. And Jesus is interceding for the saints. But, not only are we saints now, we are saints then, we are the saints to come. Jude 14 wrote that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands or myriads of His holy ones. Saints. In the earliest written prophecy that we have on record, we're told Enoch saw it. He saw the second coming. And in the second coming, guess who he saw coming back with Jesus? The saints. Look around, gang. We'll probably be dressed a little better. Prayerfully, I will be. Fine linen, white and clean, which is the righteous acts of the saints. So we got to do righteous things? Yes, because we are made righteous by God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, the saints of the Gospel. These are the ones to whom Paul is writing. And he's going to explain more about this and it just gets more exciting to understand the identity of the Hagias. My identity, your identity, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Far too often Christians will submit to their sinful nature over their saintly nature. They'll bow to the world calling us no better than they are. Well, yeah, I guess that's true, so I guess we'll just do what they do. No, we are saints. Called saints. Let's live like it. Number nine. Saints of the Gospel now receive what I would call the serenity of the Gospel. Latter half of verse seven. Paul finally gets to it after six and a half, seven verses 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul will say this in every single letter. Grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. He blends here two different greetings. A Greek greeting and a Hebrew greeting. The Greek greeting was charis. Grace. Two Greeks would meet in the street. Grace. Charis. Grace to you. Goodwill to you. Have a good day. I mean, it was that kind of thinking. Charis. The Hebrew greeting was shalom. Peace. Paul combines the two. Later in Ephesians, he's going to talk about how Jesus combined the two, Gentile and Jew, making the two into one man. Here, Paul just does it with a simple greeting. Grace, you Greeks, and peace, you Hebrews. Grace and peace. Why does he link the two so often? In fact, not only Paul, Peter does it. James does it. Jude, all the New Testament writers do it. Save the Gospels. All the letters through the New Testament begin with the same welcome, the same introduction. John does it. Grace and peace. Why? Because the more you get grace, the more you'll have peace. And if you don't get grace, and when I say get, I mean understand. The more you understand grace, the more I comprehend what the grace of God is, the more peace I have in my life. The less I strive the less I'm stressed. Grace and peace. How are you doing on the peace front? How are you in your life doing right now? Could some of you use a little more peace? I would suggest that you receive a little more grace. Seek to understand a little more grace. Because again, the more grace, the more peace. And God works this in two ways in our lives, peace specifically. Two ways that that the peace of God, there's actually two kinds of peace here. There's peace with God. Grace and peace, peace with God. That's what we could call spiritual peace or positional peace. That, That we have peace with God. That's what was bought by Jesus on the cross. Peace with God. Paul will explain this further in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt, exult in hope of the glory of God. So we have peace with God because of the grace bought by Jesus. Does that make sense? So positionally, right now, tonight, you can sit here and know if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you're saved by Him, you have peace with God. There's no more quarrel. There's no problem. There's no barrier between you and the Father. The veil has been torn by the tearing of the body of Christ. We have peace with God. But what about the peace of God? See, while peace with God is positional peace, Peace of God is tangible peace. It's, it's, it's physical peace. It's the peace that I think sometimes eludes us as followers. It's the peace Paul talked about in Philippians 4 verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that marvelous? 
God didn't just give us positional peace and then say, okay, now live your stressed out lives. He gives us positional peace and then He comes along and says, now let me give you the secret to physical peace. Tangible peace. So that in the midst of all things swirling around you in life, and I get it, there are many, we walk with peace. It doesn't make sense. It surpasses all comprehension. Right? But it's the peace of God. And the reason why it's the peace of God is it's what we see in Jesus. Nobody had more peace than Him. And I'm talking about physical Jesus walking the planet. For those 32, 33 years that He was here, nobody evidenced more peace and patience and and self-control. Nobody was like Him. Whether he was engaging the storms or enduring the scourge, he was at peace. Whether he was navigating the crowds or nailed to the cross, he was always at peace. You want to do an interesting study? Just write at the top of a piece of paper, the presence of mind of Christ. And then go through all the life situations that you see Jesus in in the Gospels and consider his presence of mind who on the cross, in all the torment and suffering, back shredded, hands and feet pierced, brow broken. From that place on the cross, dying, he was able to actually converse with one of the thieves and offer him salvation that very day. He was able to look down and see his mother, who would be left now without an oldest son to care for her, And say to his best friend John, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. John, take care of mom. Presence of mind. Absolute peace. Even when being scourged, we don't get a picture of Jesus screaming and crying and yelling and biting back. No, He didn't speak a word. As a lamb before its shearers is silent, so He was silent. Peace. And that's the example, gang. The peace of Christ, the peace of God in Jesus, is to be able to walk. Remember when He walked on the water? That the disciples were straining at the oars, which means the waves were up and down, and Jesus was just walking. Like He was out for a Sunday stroll or something. Peace. didn't bother Him. He's the Savior who could sleep in the midst of a storm if He needed to. And the one who says, hush, be still. Jesus walked in grace and peace. John 14, 27, He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Thank you for saying that, Lord. Because the world has promised me all kinds of peace in all kinds of ways and it never pans out. Never works. There's always one more glass of wine necessary to get there. There's always one more drug that needs to be dropped just so I can sleep. There's always one more this, one more. It's never enough. Have you noticed that in the world? When the world says, here's a way to find peace, there aren't enough Caribbean islands to offer the peace that we so long for. Jesus says, I don't give it like the world. Do not let your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. 
Peace with God, peace of God. And Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's Paul's greeting. At this rate, we should be done with Romans in about 12 years. This greeting is loaded with spiritual truth and theological depth. And I do encourage you, as you, as you, in your quiet time, perhaps this week, or in your study time, I encourage you to go back over these just these seven verses and ponder them. And see what else the Lord shows you. Because there's more that I just didn't even have time to cover tonight. But don't forget, in all of this theological depth, don't forget how personal a letter this is. Verse 8, Paul reminds us. First, he says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. By the way, he's not going to say secondly and then thirdly. He just says first. So, in essence, before he launches, as we will see down in verse 18, before he launches into the doctrine of and the teaching of this letter, he has to get something out of the way first. He's greeted them, and now he says, I got, I got to tell you guys something. You've got to understand this. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Not just for Priscilla and Aquila, who are from Rome. He had met them before. But for you all. I am so thankful for all of you. Can you say that about this body? I can. I am thankful for you all. Some of you are weird. Yeah, like I'm going to talk. Hello, Pop. This is Kettle. You're black. I am thankful for you all. For all of our weirdness and quirkiness and uniqueness and, and, and differences, I am thankful for you all. And Paul said that. I'm thankful for every single one of you. I want you to know that. Because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. Now this is marvelous. Paul is amazed. He's never been to Rome. At least not on a gospel mission. I don't know if he went as a kid or something. Probably not. But he's never been there with the intent of bringing the gospel. Never been to Rome since giving his life to Jesus. And yet he sees the fruit of the work of the Roman saints. It's known all over the place. Paul hears about Rome. It's made known what's going on there. And Paul is amazed at their faith. And Rome wasn't exactly what I would choose to be an incubator for tender faith. The Roman historian Tacitus said this, Rome was the city into which flows all things that are vile and abominable and where they are encouraged. This is what the historian said. And in the midst of this hotbed of seething sin and sensuality, the Roman Christians were faithful. And and that excited Paul. And by the way, that excited Jesus too. Anytime he saw that kind of faith, faith that was pronounced, remember what happened? He marveled, the Bible tells us. A Roman centurion came up to him and said, Lord, could you heal my servant who is sick? And Jesus said, well, yeah, let's go. And he said, no, 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 it's all right. All you have to do is say the word. See, he says, I'm a man under authority and I have those soldiers who are under me as well. I know how this works. All I have to do is say go and they go. All I have to do is say stay and they stay or come and they come. You know, they're like dogs, really. I wish that worked with Reggie. Doesn't. But he said, that's all I have to do. So just say the word and my servant will be healed. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, that Jesus 
actually verse 10, heard this and he marveled. And he said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. This is awesome. A Roman who gets it. And Paul feels the same way about the church in Rome. Great faith. And he's amazed and he's encouraged. 4 verse 9, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. Now Sunday we talked about this. It was AD 58 probably. He wouldn't get there until 61 or 62. So three or four years. And he still wasn't going to get there, but he wanted to. It was his desire. Jesus would tell him, yeah, you're going to go. But even after Jesus said that, it was a good two years. And yet the desire is there in in Paul. By the way, something else to note there in verse 9, related to the Gospel... He says, God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel. Notice that preaching of the is italicized. It's because it's not there. So, so the preaching of is assumed in the gospel. When you see the word gospel, euangelion, it is assumed that it is being preached. In other words, you don't have the gospel without the preaching of the gospel, because the gospel is the preaching of the God good news. Is that too simple? I I point that out because I think in the church we've separated the two. I, I think we've said there's the gospel, and then there's the preaching. No. The gospel inherently requires the preaching, because the gospel, the euangelion, is the proclamation of the God good news. I have this news. What does news inherently make me want to do? Share it. Open it up. Read it. That's what news is. That's what the gospel is. If it's the gospel, it must be preached. Do you know the gospel? Are you preaching the gospel? Because brothers and sisters, we can't say we know the gospel if we're not preaching the gospel because that's what it means. I have this good news, this God good news. And because it's news, I've got to share it. And with this, Paul says, I pray for you without ceasing. I pray for you without without ceasing. Always in my prayers. Unceasingly, verse 9, making mention of you. Unceasingly? Verse 10, Always in my prayers making request that perhaps now at last by the will of God I might succeed in coming to you. Paul had met Priscilla and Aquila, as I said. He had heard about the faith of Rome. He was thankful for the saints. He was praying for them constantly. Now, how do you do that? How do you pray unceasingly? The word there is adialeptos. And adialeptos is also translated incessantly. It's non-stop praying. It's like an earworm. You ever had an earworm? You know what an earworm is? It's not a little wiggly thing that they put in your head in Star Trek. It, it's, actually, it's actually a phrase that, that means you get a song stuck in your head and it goes around 
and around and around and around. It doesn't stop. It's incessant and it drives you nuts. Now I've mentioned to you already twice because it so impressed me. The word of the Lord for our fellowship. Righteousness. The fact that that the book or the letter to the Romans is about the righteousness of God will teach us how righteousness truly looks, what it means to walk this whole thing out. I told you the night before the Sunday morning that I was up all night. What I didn't tell all of you was the reason why I was up all night. I had an earworm. I'm lying there in bed and all of a sudden an old Michael W. Smith song, perhaps you're familiar with it, it's, uh, it's based off the Lord's Prayer, Our Father Who Art in Heaven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's all I got. Over and over and over and I was ready to kill Michael W. Smith. <laughs> Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. At first it was soothing. You know, around 11 o'clock at night, I'm lying there head on the pillow and I'm singing the song to myself and I couldn't remember the next line, which is great as a pastor, but I couldn't remember how the musical line went next, so it just kept spinning around. You know, it's kind of like, this is a song that never ends. Okay, it was that thing. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Our Father, over and over and over. By about 11.30, I'm going... By 1 o'clock, I'm going... This is not good. I need another song. I'm like, play that funk game. That didn't work. <laughs> Drawn off the 70s, you know. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it wasn't until like 3.30 in the morning. Because every time I woke up, which was about every five minutes, I kept hearing that song. And it wasn't until around 3.30, seriously, in the morning, the Lord said... It's about righteousness, Rick. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is thy name. The righteousness of God. And that's what he implanted that word into my heart. Righteousness. I want you to tell them about righteousness. Righteousness. And all of a sudden the song settled and I, and I finally got to sleep. But I woke up the next morning before services thinking it's about righteousness. And I hadn't cracked Romans yet. It was an earworm. It was incessant. It was nonstop. That's the idea of praying without ceasing. It's like an earworm. It just doesn't stop. You just keep going. You can't get it out of your head. Is there someone you can't stop thinking about? I would say immediately the Lord is saying, you need to be praying for this person. That's why I keep bringing them to your mind. Is there something in your life that just keeps commanding your attention? Entrust it to prayer. Whatever it is that keeps spinning around and around and around and around in our minds, let's entrust it to the Spirit. Pray without ceasing. Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Just pray about it. We get so formal and we think, oh man, I just feel so bad. And I know you've done this too. It's been three or four days and I'm like, wow, I haven't sat down and actually had a prayer time. And there's place for that. And I think there's a discipline for that. But there's also just praying as you go. The police cannot pull you over for praying while you're driving. Texting, yes. Praying, you can do all you want. Pray without ceasing. 
if a brother or a sister is on your mind, even if you don't know of any reason that you need to pray, even if you are unaware of any possible problem in their life, pray without ceasing. Ben comes to mind, I pray for Ben. My kids come to mind, I pray for my kids. My dog comes to mind, I pray for relief. (laughs) See what I'm saying? Pray without ceasing. Entrust everything to prayer. And James said in James 5.16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Ah, but that's the problem. I'm not a righteous man. Why waste time praying? It's only the righteous people who have effective prayer lives. My friends, you are saints. Elijah, James says Elijah was a man just like us. No different. He prayed that it would stop raining and it stopped raining. He prayed again that the rains would come and they came in a deluge. Gang, he was no more righteous than you. Paul, no more righteous than you. Our righteousness comes from Jesus. You are righteous before the Father. Therefore, your prayer is effective. So pray without ceasing. Paul's going to get into the righteousness of God, isn't he? Verse 11. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be buzzed. Oh, no, established. That is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I think this is fantastic. For Paul, the impartation of spiritual gifts was not for personal ecstatic experience. The impartation of spiritual gifts was for the care of the body. I want to impart a gift to you. Why, Paul? So that together we can minister one to the other. So that I can benefit from your presence and you can benefit from my presence. Paul says, I want to see you established. I want this to be an established fellowship that is stabilized and confirmed and strengthened in the Lord. So I want to impart spiritual things to you, spiritual gifts to you, because the impartation of those gifts will establish you. Why do so many churches split and divide I would say because they lack the Spirit. Because the lampstand has been removed. What holds us together, what establishes us together, is fellowship in the Lord who is the Spirit. And as we fellowship together, and the Lord imparts spiritual gifts and anointings, which by the way are irrevocable, He gives those that the Fellowship may be strengthened as a body. It's bodybuilding. You can say the fellowship that prays together stays together, but it's much deeper. The whole togetherness aspect, what Paul is pointing out here in this very personal opening, I long to be with you, I want to see you, I've heard about you, I'm so excited about your faith, and I want to bring a spiritual gift to you. It's about togetherness. It's what we're even doing right now. Now, I know you're all in seats and you're all looking forward right now, but but we worship together. We're sharing this Word together. We fellowship together. I have been so blessed that over 12 years this body has been so stable. Perfect? Far from it. 
And, and that's because I know who the senior pastor is. We're imperfect. We're flawed. We goof it up. We hurt each other. We get upset with each other. We're not always the most caring, the most patient, the most understanding, but we're together, aren't we? And as we are together in this, in this, drawn by the Word of God, encompassed by the Spirit of God, gifted by the Holy Spirit, in this togetherness there is stability. And Paul says, that's what I want, you, want for you there in Rome. I want you to be established. Paul put it this way in the Corinthian letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, he says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. There is not one body, oh yeah, and that guy over there. There's not one body and this breakaway group. No, there's just one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.27 Now you are Christ's body and individually are members of it. And God has appointed in the church and then He begins to list. And we'll get there. But he begins to list the anointings, leadership anointings, and he lists gifts that are given within the church and the body. Why? To stabilize, to confirm, to strengthen, to establish the fellowship in the name of Christ. Verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I want some of the fruit. I want to bite into that apple. I want to taste that orange. I I want some of those sweet grapes. He compares the sweetness of fellowship and the shared giftings and anointings in the body to fruit. And it's a good comparison. As Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I want some of that fruit. Let me encourage you, one of the best places to go get good fruit, it's in the body of Christ. You want some fruit? You want to be fed? You want the sweetness of fellowship? you got to be where the body is. I want the fruit, he says. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul says I'm under obligation. Why? Because he was indebted to God. And he recognized that. I owe God everything. I owe Him my very existence. And because he was indebted to God, he's obliged to all people. That's a great attitude. That, that needs to be my attitude. And perhaps yours. That we're indebted to God and we are obliged to all people to preach the gospel. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I am obligated. And you know, when Paul talks about it, obligation doesn't sound like such a bad thing. I have an obligation to fulfill, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the day I die or He calls me home. And with that, and again, there's so much more here, but 
we'll keep going forward. With that, we come to the hub, the golden milestone, I called it on Sunday, of Paul's letter to the saints at Rome. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I'm not ashamed. It's the real power of God, not the power of Caesar, not the might of Rome, not all the gods of this world, little G's who don't have a clue. No, this is the power of God, the dunamis, the characteristic power of God Himself is embedded in the Gospel, which is able to save Jews first and also the Greeks. For in it, the righteousness of God, and again, note that it's the first of five times Paul will use that phrase in this letter. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And we talked about that at length on Sunday morning, so I'm not going to talk more about those verses tonight. I just want to conclude with this. How did the church get started in Rome? Who planted it? How how did it begin? Now that's an interesting question because people are divided on the answer. Papias, an early, early disciple, actually born around 70 AD and uh, was discipled and followed through. And he actually wrote and told us that it was Mark who wrote his gospel based on the preaching of Peter in Rome somewhere around 57 to 58 AD. So right around the time that Paul is writing this letter, Peter got to Rome ahead of Paul. We need to say that. Peter needs credit for getting there first because John got to the tomb first. Okay, so we'll give this one to Peter. So apparently Peter did get to Rome and did preach and and Mark wrote his gospel based on that teaching of Peter. But it doesn't tell us, history doesn't indicate that Peter planted a church there. He came and preached to Christians who were already there. How does... How does that work? Peter didn't do it. And and Paul tells us by his own admission, I haven't even gotten there yet. The church precedes Peter. The church precedes Paul. As I said a third time, I'll say it. Paul met Prisca and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila in the early 50s. Jews who had been kicked out of Rome, but they were Jewish believers. And something else to add to this, Paul used what we could call the Star Trek model of evangelism. What's that? Boldly going where no man had gone before. That was really was Paul's attitude. He says in Romans 15.20, I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named so that I will not build on another man's foundation. If there's another guy there, I don't want to go there. Because the gospel's already been founded and grounded and built up and established. So I'll go somewhere else because, hey, praise the Lord, that's taken care of. But he wants to go to Rome. So Paul knows... That no one else has established the church there. And that doesn't mean that he's blowing off Peter. It just means that Peter probably went there and preached and then after that, who knows, went on somewhere else. But Paul saw a need in Rome and saw the need to go and establish the church. He saw Rome as as relatively fresh soil. Well, so, back to the question. How did the church get there? I would suggest to you That the Roman church was planted from faith to faith. That the original faith of believers in Rome was seeded by none other than the Holy Spirit Himself. What do you mean? 
a quarter century earlier, a number of people groups were listed on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 10, we see one people group that isn't from North Africa or the Middle East. One group from Europe, a people from Rome. There were Romans at Pentecost, Roman Jews who had come to Pentecost, like all the Jews come to Pentecost, to celebrate and to to maintain the traditions. And there on that day, the Holy Spirit was poured out, the church began, and this little group of Roman Christians, perhaps even baptized among the 3,000 that day, went back to Rome. With the message of the Gospel, and a church began. So when Peter got there, there was already a group of people there. So when Paul arrived, when he wrote this letter, he's writing to an already formed group of believers. They need doctrine. They need teaching. They need understanding. How does this all work? We know the Holy Spirit came. We know Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies. So I would wager that for the last 25 years, they've been studying through the Hebrew Scriptures looking for Jesus. But what does all of this mean? I think that's how the God good news originally made its way to Rome. We know, Paul writes, that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who are called according to His purpose. To those who love God, who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 Looking all the way back to the Hebrew Scriptures, Exodus 34, verse 18. Remember what Moses said to God? I want to see Your glory. And God said, I Myself will make all My goodness pass before you. The psalmist wrote, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, verse 8. And so the very basis of Paul's writing to the saints in Rome is the goodness of God. The God-good news. The euangelion. Which makes verse 18 all the more striking. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul begins this letter declaring the very goodness of God, the gospel of God's goodness. It's all good. It's the hub of the letter. And listen, it is also the basis of the wrath. Hmm? The goodness of God is the basis of the wrath of God. We've already established all that He does is good. He does not do evil. God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He is only and always good. My friends, that means that even the wrath of God flows from His goodness. It's because He's so good that the wrath will come. And we'll talk about that more on Sunday morning.